Good morning. In today's headlines, new footage of the January 6th breach challenges the narrative surrounding one of the protesters who lost her life that day. Florida is now set to teach students that some African Americans benefited from slavery because it taught them useful skills. A state teachers union calls it a big step backward. We hear a perspective on this. The Biden administration is suing the state of Texas that's over a floating barrier that's been installed in the Rio Grande River. Find out how Texas Governor Greg Abbott reacted. The U.S. has sent billions of dollars in weapons and ammunition to Ukraine. A newly released Pentagon report shows not all of it is getting into the right hands. After a weekend of passionate protests on both sides of the issue, Israel's parliament passed a law yesterday that curbs some powers of its Supreme Court. Seven million dollars to create each $50,000 a year job. That's what a report says is happening with subsidies for electric vehicles. We examine the goals and risks of Bidenomics in this context. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Tuesday, July 25th. And you know, Evelyn, I'll give you a little sneak peek of my interview with Kevin Stockland. We, we talked about some of the concerns surrounding these EV subsidies. And you know, it, Bidenomics here is a little bit questionable because they're trying to prov provide these, but it comes at a heavy cost. I see. Well, President Biden argues that it's working well, building the economy from uh, bottom up instead of top down. Uh, yes, that's right. But can he do that without so much waste? And, you know, these push for EVs carries another issue, and that's the geopolitical risk associated with sourcing this lithium. Right. Good point. Well, I can't wait to hear that. Um, what what your interviewee had to say about that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to start the day with some more news surrounding the Bidens. That's right. The Justice Department says it's looking to clear up any misrepresentations about its work. It's offering U.S. Attorney David Weiss for public testimony before Congress this fall. Weiss led the criminal investigation into Hunter Biden. Now House Republicans want answers about IRS whistleblowers' allegations of the probe being tainted by political interference. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more for us. The DOJ sent a letter to lawmakers on the House Judiciary Committee Monday. Committee Chair Jim Jordan requested that Weiss and close to a dozen other officials come in for transcribed interviews as part of an investigation into claims the Justice Department improperly interfered in Hunter Biden's case. Weiss's probe ended last month with a plea deal. IRS whistleblowers allege there was interference and preferential treatment in the Hunter Biden probe. The letter states the Justice Department has reservations about public testimony while investigations and judicial proceedings are ongoing, but is deeply concerned about misrepresentations about its work that could harm public confidence in the even-handed administration of justice. The department also says it believes it's in the public's interest for the American people in Congress to hear directly from Weiss on assertions and questions about his authority. It proposes several dates in September and October when Weiss would be willing to testify. Hunter Biden's scheduled guilty plea is set to take place Wednesday. He's agreed to plead guilty to two federal tax misdemeanors as part of a plea deal. A sentencing date has not yet been scheduled. It's unclear if Jordan will accept the Justice Department's offer of a public hearing. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. New footage from Capitol Police CCTV cameras obtained by the Epic Times adds crucial details to the tragic death of Roseanne Boyland on January 6th. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the video. 
Here we see DC Fire and EMS Department paramedics in the crypt, continuing resuscitation efforts on Boyland at the U.S. Capitol. That's after CPR and other life-saving efforts inside a basement entrance to the Capitol failed, following her collapse outside the lower West Terrace Tunnel on January 6, 2021. Soldiers watch as the fruitless efforts to save Boylan's life continue. After some time, Boyland is transferred to the ground, where desperate efforts to resuscitate her carry on. Some of the soldiers join in, with one holding an IV bag. Epoch Times reporter Joe Hanneman discusses how the footage changes the narrative about Boylan's death. Hanneman says Boylan's parents first heard from the police that they had found her wandering around in the rotunda and that she had just simply collapsed there. As it turns out, none of that is true. She was never in the rotunda. She wasn't by herself, and uh, she collapsed quite a bit earlier, at least 35 minutes earlier in the in the tunnel, uh, which was two levels down from the rotunda. So it really uh, poked a hole in, in the, the first story that the, the parents were told. Hanneman is calling for a grand jury to be impaneled to investigate Boylan's death and some other instances that happened that day. Congress could have a role in this uh, as they're starting to ramp up some of their January 6th investigations uh, to look into this and to push to get some of the records that are still being withheld. Boylan traveled to Washington to attend former President Donald Trump's January 6th speech at the Ellipse. During the chaotic events of that day, police released gas into a tunnel Boylan was in. That reportedly set off a stampede of protesters toward the tunnel mouth. Boylan fell to the ground where she and dozens of others became trapped under piles of bodies. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. New educational standards in Florida are causing controversy. They teach students that black people benefited from slavery because it taught useful skills. The standards come in response to so-called anti-woke policies spearheaded by Governor Ron DeSantis. However, critics say it only presents half the story and half the truth. The lessons show that African Americans learned skills as slaves that could be applied for their personal benefit and that they themselves committed acts of violence against other African Americans. The NLACP Florida State Converts rebuked the standards, saying they will, quote, purposefully omit or rewrite key historical facts about the black experience. The State Board of Education unanimously backed the new standards. Board members defended the curriculum, saying it teaches the darkest parts of American history while not teaching that slavery was beneficial. Kelly Wright, the host of America's Hope, joins us now. He's going to give us some perspective on this. Kelly, thanks for joining us today. Well, it's a pleasure to join you, Kevin. It's an unfortunate time that we're talking about this particular situation when we do want to edify and magnify America's hope. Yet this is part of the fabric of America. When you look at the founding of this nation, uh, some people will say it's all about 1619 and that it was all done and designed to enslave people for the profit of making a country. Yet if you go to 1776, you realize that in that form, in the Declaration of Independence and the documents that followed thereafter, we find that we are a nation created and endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And while the founding fathers and mothers didn't actually equally apply that to everyone, including indigenous people and African-Americans, some of them being enslaved, many of them being enslaved, and that was the uh, Virginia making it chattel property, 
making slavery chattel property and then going on to fuel an economy that actually became the greatest nation on this planet. Yet, is there any benefit out of slavery? The answer would be a resounding no. Well, yeah, and echoing your statement there is that the statewide teachers union called this a big step backward in education. So, well, I want to know, this 216-page document, it's part of these standards and social studies, is it possible that the truth surrounding this, this so-called benefit that African Americans receive from slavery is worthwhile to teach students? You know, that's a great, great question. I think that's what's perplexing so many people. It's a very complex situation when you talk about slavery. But when you peel the, back the onion, you look through all the layers, there's nothing that could be learned in slavery other than the abject horror of it and the fact that it was done. It's a dastardly deed inflicted upon mankind. And even modern day slavery is just as bad. In fact, it's worse. If you see things like Sound of Freedom, you see how human trafficking is still going on. The propensity for human beings to enslave each other is a direct uh, abomination to humanity. And it's inhumanity against humanity. And it's something that needs to be stopped. And you can't colorize it. You can't uh, determine, it, determine that it's actually a benefit and that you learn certain skills. Uh, many of the African-Americans who were enslaved and kidnapped from their own countries were people who were very industrious, very studious. Uh, I myself recall in 1999 going to Benin, West Africa, and talking to the president of that nation as well as the president of Ghana as they were apologizing for the misdeeds of their ancestors' past in perpetuating the slave trade by selling their own people into captivity as a result of tribal warfare and tribal factions. And so you would sell them to slave merchants who happened to be white or Spanish, and then distributing the slave trade that went on for 400 years, the transatlantic uh, slave trade. The bottom line, though, is that the president apologized for the misdeeds of the past and went on to say that out of that, he deemed that uh, many African-Americans turned out to be the modern-day Josephs because they brought skills to this nation that helped build our nation and turned it into a great nation because of the skills they already had. I spoke to people uh, in plantations in Virginia, historical curators in Jamestown, one of the first uh, settlements that we had, and they st I asked them quite frankly, what do the African-American bring to the economy and the well-being of this founding country. And they said without the African-American input, Jamestown would not have survived because they knew how to develop the cash crop tobacco. Uh, the skills that went on, uh, the cotton gin and all the other skills that the African-Americans uh, contributed to. If you're really gonna look at history, look at the, look at, uh, not, not try to determine, uh, to, to determine that it's a benefit. It's not a benefit, it's a blight. It's a birth defect on our nation, and we have to deal with it in honest terms. So I think in terms of that particular teaching, we need to go back and say there's no benefit from slavery, but we have everything to gain if we discuss it in the open and realize that the vestiges of slavery which still haunt many people today, black and white, we have to learn how to come together and find the hope in moving on beyond this stain of slavery, wipe it away from our past by acknowledging that it happened, and then actually trying to come together and break bread together as we did and must continue to do in so many of our communities. Uh, Florida, I think, got it wrong. Uh, the, the leadership in Florida is trying to do some, some good things down there. This is not one of them. So, Kelly, I do really appreciate your personal experience that you're providing this insight here. The state board members may push back on this criticism in saying that the standards do not teach that slavery was beneficial and that it addresses the darkest parts of American history. So what's your reaction to this? 
Well, my reaction to that is that uh, the language, uh, make sure you get the language right as you put this together. This is a 216-page document. Uh, but just that one uh, particular aspect where you say anything of slavery's benefit and that skills were learned, uh, how do you say that these are skills that are marketable and, and can actually personal benefit, personally benefit you when you are still enslaved and you don't have your freedom to actually use those skills? And then on the end of uh, slavery, throughout the Emancipation Proclamation, the Reconstruction area, era, you saw those skills, uh, so-called skills that were taught, like being a blacksmith. Many African-Americans already knew how to do that. Uh, many African-Americans piloted ships and boats and helped, quite frankly, the, the Union Army win by being able to, to be spies. They had the intellect, they had the wisdom, they had the knowledge, they had the skill sets to already become great farmers and great contributors to this nation. Let's talk about the excellence of all people in this nation, Native American, African American, White American. Latino American, every American who's come to this country uh, some way, some shape, some form, some fashion to actually build a better nation and become a more perfect union. You don't do it by saying there's a benefit from uh, the birth defect of slavery. It's like saying that communism, uh, enslaving people and persecuting people, people in Falun Gong or Christianity, uh, forcing them to go underground and persecuting them, there's some benefit out of that. I tend to think that that's not the case. Well, Kelly Wright, host of America's Hope, I do really appreciate your in-depth analysis on this topic. Thank you. And you can tune in to America's Hope tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern to hear the story of a Chinese woman who fights for her freedom. And coming up, despite pleasure from Joe Biden and major protests, Israel's parliament green-lighted a new law that curbs some of the powers of its Supreme Court. The Justice Department is suing the state of Texas over its floating border wall. Governor Greg Abbott was quick to respond. Welcome back. Israel's parliament approved a law yesterday that limits the Supreme Court's ability to change parliamentary decisions. Entities Daniel Monahan has more on the law that was passed in a 64-0 vote after opponents walked out rather than voting against it. The law includes a provision that prevents judges from striking down government decisions on the basis they're extremely unreasonable. The law taking effect would mean that the Supreme Court wouldn't be able to review decisions such as the termination of officials on those grounds. Netanyahu and his allies say the changes are needed to curb the powers of unelected judges and restore the balance of the three branches of government. The move came despite pleas from U.S. President Joe Biden to hold off until consensus in Israel was built. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre reacted, saying, it is unfortunate that the vote took place today, but later seemed to soften her stance. Look, it, our decades-long decades uh, partnership is ironclad. Uh, that continues to be the case. Our commitment to Israel's security is ironclad. Critics say the judicial overhaul is unnecessary and fueled by personal and political grievances of Netanyahu, who's on trial for corruption charges, and his partners. Demonstrators have protested against the plan changes, including blocking a road leading to Parliament. Some companies, including gas stations, closed in protest ahead of the vote, and thousands of military reservists have declared their refusal to serve. 
However, thousands of Netanyahu supporters also flocked to central Tel Aviv in a show of support for the planned changes to the judiciary. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Joining us now to break things down is Aryeh Lightstone. He is a former senior advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Israel from 2017 to 2021. Good morning, Aryeh. So this was the first step um, that of, of um, what Netanyahu wanted to do, so part of the judicial overhaul. What are the broader changes that he wants to make? Well, you know, we're not positive whether this is the first step or the last step. This is certainly a scaled-down uh, proposal from what was initially proposed back in February. And the big question is, is what is the end result of this? And the answer is normally somewhere in the middle. Uh, the judiciary, almost every political uh, leader in Israel, from right to almost all the way left, has agreed that the judiciary needs to be reformed. The fact that Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister, is doing it means that the center and the left can't agree with it. So therefore, there's been an entire uh, uproar about the way it's been done. I think people are going to take August off. I think they're going to see what actually happens with this, and there hopefully will be measured steps to see what will be advanced versus what will not be advanced in order to try to bring what was a runaway judiciary system into something that resembles more what we would have in our mainstream democracies like ours. I'm wondering how the Supreme Court will react to this, because some say that they could would still be able to disqualify the bill at this point. So how do you think they will react? Well, that's the wild card here. Uh, if the Supreme Court, if every acts, uh, ironically enough, reasonably, meaning the Supreme Court allows the law to pass and then wait to see how the law is actually applied, then I think you're going to wind up with a great sigh of relief from all sides, both those pro and those against, to see that, hey, this is actually a necessary reform that should bring some more stability instead of instability to the region. Now, if the Supreme Court immediately rejects this law, I think at that point in time, the proof will be in the pudding for those who are pro-reform that governments who were elected can't actually govern. Right. But speaking about stability, because we're now seeing widespread protests and the reservists have already threatened to stop serving the country. Doctors are joining in with a strike. So how do you expect this, uh, the, the protests and strikes to play out in the next few weeks? I see democracy in action. I see peaceful democracy, uh, civil discourse, I don't know if you saw the video of uh, there was an enormous pro-judicial reform pr uh, protest in Tel Aviv and one against in Jerusalem. And there's a central subway station that tra or train station that transfers in between the two. And the protesters were high-fiving each other going up and down. Uh, Israelis communicate in a good way by yelling. Uh, when there are disagreements, they yell really loudly. The images that you're seeing are, I think, exceptions by far. Uh, to the rule over here. And I think that you're going to see come the end of August, September, you're going to see the Israel that we see. I think there will be robust uh, and likely loud uh, disagreements, but I don't think you're going to see violence. I think these these images in general are exceptions, not the rule. The image you're seeing right now is the rule of peaceful protesting in public squares. Right. And what about the reservists? Uh, do you have any concerns with um, with with that in terms of security? I'm not an intelligence or a military expert by any stretch of imagination, but I do know one thing about Israelis is that when they are pushed, uh, they will demonstrate their resilience. I, I would doubt uh, that the Israeli uh, military is going to be harmed in a meaningful way. Israelis will have each other's back at the end of the day. This, I believe, right now is more of a political statement. Uh, the proof will be in the pudding. Israel gets tested. They will be tested. 
And I think uh, it would be a big mistake for Israel's enemies to doubt their uh, ability to withstand their challenges as they have uh, day in, day out for the last 75 years. All right. Thank you so much, Arya Lightstone. I really appreciate your time today. Have a good morning. Moving on, the Department of Justice sued the state of Texas yesterday. That's over a floating barrier that's been installed in the Rio Grande River. Texas officials say it's needed to stop illegal crossings into the U.S. Entities Jeremy Sandberg has more on the lawsuit and Texas Governor Greg Abbott's response to it. See you in court. That was Texas Governor Greg Abbott's message to President Biden in a letter Monday. Texas authorities began installing the roughly 1,000-foot string of buoys in the middle of the Rio Grande River near Eagle Pass, Texas last week. It's part of Abbott's initiative, Operation Lone Star, meant to deter illegal immigration. The barrier was installed after four migrants drowned trying to cross the river earlier this month. Abbott says it helps deter potentially dangerous crossing attempts. The Justice Department says the move was illegal and done without federal oversight. It says Texas circumvented the Federal Rivers and Harbors Act by not consulting first with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and demanded the state remove the barrier and pay for it. The White House accuses Abbott of sowing chaos with inhumane political stunts. He's literally operating in bad faith. That's what this governor is doing. While we're trying to fix and deal with an issue, a broken system, an immigration system that has broken for decades, and he's undermining it. Mexico has also complained about the barrier. It says it violates a water treaty and may encroach on Mexican territory. Associate Attorney General Vanita Gupta said in a statement announcing the lawsuit that the barrier risks damaging U.S. foreign policy and raises humanitarian concerns. She also cited threats to navigation and public safety. The lawsuit asks a federal judge in Austin to force Texas to remove the floating wall. The complaint also seeks an injunction to stop Texas from installing more barriers in the river. Abbott, in his letter, invited Biden to help stop migrants from risking their lives crossing the Rio Grande and to help save Texans and other Americans from fentanyl, cartel violence, and human trafficking by tightening border security and enforcing federal immigration laws already on the books. The Texas governor says his state is ready to take the lawsuit all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The White House announced yesterday that President Biden will veto two GOP-backed spending bills if they arrive on his desk. The pair of bills would defund a series of abortion and LGBT programs. The White, a White House statement says it strongly opposes Republicans' appropriations bills for the Department of Veterans Affairs and Department of Agriculture. It blames GOP lawmakers for cutting domestic spending to levels well below agreements set by the Fiscal Responsibility Act. It also says the move would endanger critical services for Americans. The bipartisan deal reduced non-defense discretionary spending to 2022 levels and capped spending increases at 1% annually for 10 years. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is now facing pressure from conservative Republicans that feel the debt ceiling deal didn't go far enough to cut spending. Lawmakers are expected to vote on the two bills this week. And coming up, a new report by the Pentagon found that some weapons and supplies for Ukraine have ended up in the hands of criminals. We have that and more after the break. And for the first time since the pandemic, a high-level Chinese delegation is traveling to North Korea. What's driving the visit? We'll have those details coming up in a moment.
Welcome back. Is there enough oversight for weapons the U.S. is sending to Ukraine? A report by the Pentagon found that some weapons and supplies for Ukraine have ended up in the hands of gangs and arms traffickers. Here's the story. A report by the Inspector General for the Department of Defense says there were cases of U.S. donated weapons for Ukraine turning up in the wrong hands. The internal report was published last October and originally marked secret. It has since been declassified and released following a Freedom of Information Act request. The report highlights several incidents. In June 2022, the Ukrainian intelligence service reportedly caught a group of arms traffickers selling weapons and ammunition stolen from the front lines in southern Ukraine. Also in that month, the Ukrainian agency interrupted the operations of a criminal organization believed to have been led by a Russian official. The group allegedly gained entry into a Ukrainian volunteer battalion and obtained grenade launchers and machine guns. In one incident in August of 2022, the Ukrainian agency caught a Ukrainian volunteer battalion taking more than 60 rifles and almost a thousand rounds of ammunition, presumably to sell on the black market. The new report finds that U.S. officials have limited ability to track down the equipment sent to Ukraine. This is because they are unable to conduct end-use monitoring. The U.S. has allocated tens of billions in taxpayer dollars in aid to Ukraine, and the Pentagon has identified a $6 billion accounting error in the aid. Some lawmakers have called for more oversight as to how this aid is being used. High-level Chinese Communist Party officials are heading to North Korea this week. It marks the first acknowledged visit of its kind since Pyongyang shut its borders during COVID-19. According to North Korean state media, CCP official Lee Hongjong will lead the delegation. He's a member of the party's Central Decision-Making Committee and holds a leading position in Beijing's rubber stamp parliament. The visit is to celebrate the 70th anniversary of Korean War armistice. Pyongyang says it's also inviting a Russian military delegation to the event this week. The visit comes amid simmering tensions between North and South Korea and its U.S. allies. Meanwhile, Pyongyang has remained silent on the well-being of U.S. soldier Travis King, who ran across its border last week. Now let's get to some short headlines from around the world. Wildfires forced the closure of Palmero Airport on the Italian island of Sicily today. A major blaze in a nearby area also disrupted local road and rail traffic. Extreme weather and high temperatures continue to impact Italy. Severe storms caused damage and at least two deaths in the north of the country. And hail forced a Delta passenger jet taking off from Milan and bound for New York to divert to Rome. Iran yesterday continued an annual Air Force drill in the central part of the country. This comes as the U.S. sends more fighter planes and warships to the Strait of Hormuz, a strategic waterway. Washington intends to deter Iran from seizing commercial vessels in the area. China and Russia on Sunday wrapped up an air and naval exercise in the Sea of Japan. More than 10 warships and over 30 warplanes from both sides took part in the four-day drill. The joint exercise comes at a time when the U.S. is beefing up ties with Japan and South Korea, and NATO is looking to deepen its presence in the region. Japanese police said they have arrested a woman and her parents in a beheading case. In a popular entertainment district in Japan's northern city of Sapporo, a headless man was found in a hotel room three weeks ago. The head of the victim has been missing since then. Police are still investigating the motive. 
And still to come, $7 million to create each $50,000 a year job. That's what a report says is happening with subsidies for electric vehicles. We examine the goals and risks of Bidenomics in this context. Is artificial intelligence coming for your job? There are growing signs that AI is already disrupting the global workforce. We have that and more after the break. Good to have you back. The Internal Revenue Service announced yesterday some news that should make taxpayers breathe a sigh of relief. The IRS will reverse a decades-long policy of sending agents to homes and businesses unannounced. This was done to collect unpaid taxes and documents. Tens of thousands of surprise visits were conducted annually. The main reason for the change is to protect IRS employees who increasingly faced hostile taxpayers. Scam artists have also been posing as IRS agents. Now taxpayers will receive a letter from the IRS asking them to schedule a face-to-face meeting. Next, we zoom in on where your taxpayer money is going, specifically how it's being given to EV manufacturers to create jobs. It's part of the Biden administration's aim to build the economy from the bottom up and the middle out, but an astronomical amount of money is being spent to this end only for jobs with subpar wages. We discuss Bidenomics in this context with an investigator who's been following green policy very closely. We're joined now by Kevin Stockland, reporter for the Epic Times and producer of the Shadow State documentary. It's great to have you with us, Kevin. The Biden administration says it's committed to strengthening supply chains and spurring U.S. manufacturing. And the subsidies from the Inflation Reduction Act will create jobs in factories making electric vehicle components. But is the two to seven and a half million dollars for each of these jobs worth it in the long run? Uh, well, there's been uh, just a report that was produced by an organization called Good Jobs Now, and they question that. So they have calculated that um, the cost of creating one new job is between two and seven million dollars, and these jobs are paying uh, below average wages for the auto industry, uh, somewhere between forty-five and fifty thousand dollars a year. So uh, to them, this looks like a huge giveaway to big corporations. And can you explain more about that? Is there any waste involved in these subsidies going to these big corporations? So, yeah, the money is, is all sorts of subsidies. Most of it's coming from the federal government, but there are also state subsidies to fund the construction of these plants. Um, these plants are generally, um, they are generally assembly plants for batteries where the materials are sourced, uh, you know, in places like Congo and processed in countries like China, and then they would just be assembled in the U.S. And they're typically joint ventures as well between U.S. companies and East Asian companies, generally Korean uh, companies that, that assemble these batteries. So the question that they're raising is um, this money seems to be going to uh, insider corporations, uh, and very little of it seems to be going to wages that, uh, that uh, the employees of these companies will earn. And as you know, Solyndra, company making these solar panels, was given about a half a billion dollars under the Obama administration, and then it went bankrupt two years later. So is there any amount of risk that's associated with these subsidies for these EV manufacturers? 
Yeah, you know, the hallmark of industrial policy is, is enormous waste. We saw that with Solyndra. That was, you know, $500 million plus another billion dollars of private investment, and this company went belly up within two years. Um, it also diverts resources away from things that people want. There's no evidence that consumers are going to want EVs and anywhere near the numbers that, uh, that these companies are gearing up to produce them. Uh, and the third hallmark of industrial policy is that insiders tend to get rich. And so the folks that ran Solyndra, you know, they certainly made a lot of money off of that, even though the government didn't, we didn't, investors didn't. And that will probably be the case with automakers here as well. So what's the solution to this waste? Um, you know, the solution is that the government uh, stops trying to force political, its political agenda on the market. Um, if the, the, the technology for EVs has been around for more than 100 years, it's not anything that has ever really attracted a lot of consumer demand. Uh, EVs tend to be, even today, very much a niche market. These are the average income of your EV buyer is about $150,000. Uh, these are people that live close to cities and that have charged the, the in their homes and things like this. So, um, you know, this is something that is really being pushed on consumers, and it's also being pushed on automakers. They have all these regulations that are coming out of the EPA now about emissions that are going to force automakers to take internal combustion engine vehicles off the market. So um, the best thing that the government can do is, is step out of uh, the industry, let consumers uh, get access to the products that they want, let companies produce what consumers want in the most efficient way possible, and stop trying to manipulate the market in this way. Right, and to your point, the CEO of the company that used to be Chrysler said that about 1.3 billion gas-powered cars would have to go off the market in order to meet these climate goals, and he said that's a lot of lithium. Kevin Stocklin, reporter for the Epic Times, thank you so much for your insight today. Thanks for having me on. Job loss is at the core of the artificial intelligence debate. Data suggests the latest wave of AI could take away millions of jobs, but experts say that's not the end of the story. Here's more. Is artificial intelligence coming for your job? There are growing signs that AI is already disrupting the global workforce, and experts say it's just the beginning. There are people who will learn to use AI, and they will take your job because they will become significantly more productive than you will be if you're not able to partner with an AI model. Goldman Sachs economist predicting 300 million full-time jobs could be affected by the latest wave of AI, which has created platforms like ChatGPT. The world has changed. These are new tools. You can't fear them. You just have to learn to use them. All that is already impacting nearly every industry from art and music where AI-generated songs are more affordable since there's no producer, composer, or artist to pay. It's taken away opportunity from songwriters, producers, and artists, right? So the people are trying to feed them for their families. The manufacturing sector also seen an impact. And then there's fast food, where AI is ready to take your order. Classic or bacon barbecue mother cruncher. Places like this Checkers restaurant in Iowa are already using AI for their drive through window. Whatever the guest says, they will react to that. It's crazy. And they'll just start a conversation. Turning to the ongoing Hollywood actors strike, one of the best paid actors in Hollywood is stepping up to help his own. Dwayne The Rock Johnson has donated the largest single amount from one person to the SAG-AFTRA Foundation. 
That's a nonprofit associated with the Screen Actors Guild. It helps keep actors afloat when they aren't earning an income, like right now, due to the strike. The foundation gives $1,500 to members, but Lifetime members can get up to $6,000 if they're in serious jeopardy. So how much did The Rock give? Well, the foundation isn't saying exactly, but it's more than a million dollars, and it's said to be enough to help thousands of actors keep food on their table. Organizers have asked 2,700 of the union's highest paid actors to chip in during the work stoppage. That's a very nice gesture. I wonder how many um, will actually come through. Yeah, and they're really pushing for those higher wages. Yeah. And coming up, Twitter's big rebrand. What could be behind the change and how will it impact the company? A marketing expert breaks this down after the break, so stay tuned. Good to have you back. Twitter's major rebranding effort is underway. Elon Musk has unveiled a new X logo to replace Twitter's famous blue bird. Workers were seen removing the old logo at Twitter's headquarters in San Francisco yesterday. Musk says posts will no longer be called tweets, but should be called X's. The logo is still being rolled out to all of Twitter's apps. One of the three designers behind the iconic logo said he's sad seeing the original Bluebird replaced. I think in a lot of ways it represents the best of the Internet's adolescence. It feels like something you remember fondly from your teenage years that probably is going to change and not be the same as the way it was, which is a shame. What's behind the rebranding move for Twitter? I spoke to a marketing expert. Watch. Joining us now is Elijah May, a marketing expert to break things down for us. Good morning, Elijah. I think a big question now is what's going to happen next to that company, Twitter? Uh, well, it almost, well, it already lost a big chunk of its value, cash flow is negative. How will that rebranding affect that now? You know, I think that Elon is playing a different game than most people are playing. You're talking about somebody who can afford to lose a few billion dollars here or there. And I think that this is, this was his intent from you know he tweeted over a year ago i think that this will accelerate the development of x um he's owned x.com for a long time he was part of his uh deal with paypal he's obviously retained that url so it was only a matter of time i think until he made this move we actually speculated about this a little over a year ago um i'm just surprised how out of the blue it came none of us really knew it was happening Really, what made you speculate? Because, I mean, just because he can afford it doesn't necessarily mean it's such a great idea. So what could be the thinking behind this? I didn't say it was a good idea. Um, you know, look, you've got Elon's playing. Uh, he's got very few people playing the, the game at his level, right? And so you've got Bezos and, and a handful of others out there who are able to do the kinds of things he's able to do. And so if you think about what he wants to do, he's trying to cement sort of an all-purpose legacy. And I think that there's no question in my mind that he's going to go after e-commerce. I think that, you know, Twitter had always struggled with prop profitability. And so the opportunity to build more of a, he literally called it the everything app, to build a platform where you can do a lot more things from a commerce standpoint uh, will both make the company more profitable and more cohesive. The social network married to an e-com network uh, is something people have been talking about. It hasn't really been done or done well before. Interesting. Now, he stripped Twitter of many functions before, like the verification system, the layoffs, now the rebranding. Do you think that maybe Elon Musk just wanted Twitter for its user base and how, what's going to happen to that base with this overhaul? Absolutely. 
Um, you look at uh, Gowalla was purchased by Facebook a few years ago, kind of when we, so I had spoken at a conference talking about how Gowalla was probably going to make some moves around, again, um, you know, geolocated commerce. And then all of a sudden it went away. The entire engineering team went and created Facebook check-in. Um, I think this is a very similar situation. He didn't need most of the people working there to be able to do what he wanted to do. Um, I'm sure there are plenty of people who don't appreciate that. Um, but this was never really about Twitter. It was about his broader aspirations and how he thought that this could accelerate those aspirations. Now, bottom line, before we go here, what do you think will happen next to X or um, prior Twitter? One thing Elon's absolutely brilliant at is uh, leveraging our attention, right? So the bottom line is right now we're all staring at the Twitter trying to figure out what's happening. And he's managed to steal a lot of that attention right back from threads. All anybody was talking about a week, two weeks ago was threads. Now we're all talking about X.com. Case in point, here we are. Uh, I think he's brilliant at that particular piece of strategy. And uh, we're going to see a lot of people who are just out of sheer curiosity jumping back on the platform to see what changes are happening. Mm, good point. Well, thank you so much for breaking that down for us. Elijah May, I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for having me. More tech news. Apple released updates to its iPhone, iPad, and Mac operating systems yesterday. The updates fix multiple security vulnerabilities and bugs. The tech company released iOS and iPadOS 16.6, as well as macOS 13.5. The updates provided several fixes for kernel vulnerabilities, including one that could allow a program to modify a kernel state and may have been actively exploited. Apple says the bug is now patched on all its platforms. The updates also patched a vulnerability to WebKit, the engine that powers the Safari browser. Apple says it may also have been actively exploited. As usual, Apple said it would not disclose or discuss the nature of the security flaws that are being fixed. And you know, Evelyn, those iPhones are really powerful, but the security is always a very top concern there. Oh yeah, absolutely. And we have a new story coming up for you next. A study says that one key hobby makes kids smarter and healthier. What is it? And what if your child isn't into it? And something you don't want to miss. Watch a cow scramble to take a selfie as its owner pulls out a camera. Coming up after the break. Welcome back. Kids who read for fun generally end up smarter than kids who don't. That's according to a new study. Researchers found the ideal amount of time kids should read, as well as all the ways reading helps. And we talk with experts about kids who don't like reading. How is it possible to get them to enjoy it? Entity's Faye Corder has the details. One key hobby will make your kids smarter and healthier when they're older. Reading for fun. Researchers at Cambridge and Hudan Universities found that young kids who enjoy reading develop larger brains than kids who don't. They perform better at cognitive tests and have better mental health when they get older. I've got three kids of my own. We have books all over the house. I'm constantly encouraging them to read, and thankfully, they actually do. It's going to help they, you know, them from being I'm sad and upset with things and reading to help the depression. I have two children. Two girls. It helped them with their test scores, it helped them with their vocabulary, it helped them with their confidence. Experts say there are more benefits to reading than just those. Research has shown a variety of advantages. The benefits for reading and starting reading early in life 
are just astronomical. They get better every time another researcher looks at the practice. Mike Bergen is the president of the National Test Prep Association. He says when young children read for pleasure, this results in improved reading speed and comprehension, as well as greater verbal intelligence and cognitive ability. A key finding from the study is that the ideal amount of reading is around 12 hours a week. That's a little less than two hours a day. At 12 hours, they're still able to be a kid and uh, engage in the other activities that they might want to do. And so you're activating different parts of the body and the brain. Christopher Hathaway is the founder of Advantage Ivy Tutoring. He says spending 12 hours a week maximizes the results. The study says that if kids spend over 12 hours a week, it could possibly harm them. The researchers believe this may be because they're spending too much time sitting and not engaging in other healthy activities, such as sports or socializing. So what if you have a kid who doesn't like reading? Some tips. Encourage reading and uh, never to use it as any form of punishment. Uh, so you want to have that kind of positive reinforcement. Hathaway says the way you present reading to your kids is very important. They may not like it if the books are forced on them. But a child read what he or she wants, which is to say there's no wrong way to read. Comics are great. Graphic novels are great. Articles online are great. If a student loves to read sports articles, that's fantastic. Mike Bergen, the president of the National Test Prep Association, advises bringing kids to local libraries or the kids section of local bookstores. There, they can read what they want and meet other kids who like to read. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Yeah, reading. You know, it helps kids gain new knowledge as well as, as they were mentioning, develop more cognitive function. Hmm. Yeah, I really liked learning about that. An interesting thing is whatever, uh, however good for you it might be, everything is in limits, right? More than 12 hours, maybe not that, that great. <laughs> yeah, and I have to say, you know, just make sure they're reading the right things. <laughs> right. All right, moving on. Most of us probably don't consider cows as cute. But this next story may change your mind. A young woman in Turkey has a cow named Seabreeze with an unusual habit. When she takes out her camera and calls to Seabreeze, come let's take a selfie together, the cow joyfully races over and poses for a picture. Serfi Yilmaz is a university student who helps her family around the farm. She explains how she got started. I was watching a video on Instagram and I saw a golden retriever who was trained to take selfies with his owner, coming over and putting its head on his shoulder to take a selfie. I thought to myself, my cows can do that too. It's not a big deal. So I went inside the barn and filmed the video. Her video has been a viral sensation, racking up over 11 million views. I am not surprised. I understand. This is very adorable. And honestly, sometimes cows are nothing else but big grass puppies. <laughs> Just a great connection with nature. Yeah. All right, we're wrapping things up here. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. Write us with any feedback or ideas that you may have. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.